The next day I went on a hike with my girlfriend and I told them what happened. And I said, I'm changing my plans. This is where I'm going. I feel like something's going to happen to me there. I feel like something is waiting for me there. And my friends, since they know me well, they're like, yeah, go do it. Awesome. We love it. Text us when you figure out what's waiting for you there. And so that's what happened. After four years in South Africa, I did a brief stint at home. And here I am on a bus to a town where I know no one and know nothing about. And I'm happy to be able to share with you that I was 100% right about going. San Miguel, in looking at my time there, I feel like I accomplished two years worth of life in eight months. And it was so clear from the beginning that this is where I was meant to be. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad, while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, a business strategist and consultant from Atlanta, living and thriving in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign. I'm Christine, the host and creator of this here podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I appreciate you so much. So thrilled to be bringing you all this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I really think y'all are going to be very pleased with this episode. I say that for every episode. Um, but I think it's true for every episode. I'm biased because this is my labor of love, but I also think I'm right. So there's that. All right, on to the episode. Season 5. Episode 11. Today's episode features Taylor Ava Fryer. Taylor is a writer, TEDx speaker, art historian, and global communication specialist with previous roles at the United Nations, World Bank, and Google. She is also the founder of Art Unknown, with a deep commitment to re-examining histories from a decolonized lens. Taylor is a PhD candidate in art history at the University of Cape Town. Her thesis is entitled Black Sexual Politics and the Erotic, the Intersection of Gender Politics and Sexuality in Contemporary Visual Art in Africa, which has been partially published with Aix Marseille University in Provence, France. As a Creative Knowledge Resources Fellow, her interest includes the politics of visual culture, women leadership, the decolonization of art and climate action. Her most recent lecture series was entitled Art, Theory, and Society, which focused on various histories of representation of the Black female form from the Belle Epoque to contemporary context. 
Taylor is a contributing writer for Business Insider, and she has been featured in Vogue magazine. She lives in between Paris and San Miguel de Allende, but is proudly from Oakland. I met Taylor here in Valencia, Spain, after receiving a LinkedIn introduction from my past podcast guest, Jackie Omotalade, from season one, episode 12. So shout out to Jackie for the amazing link up. Y'all will absolutely love Taylor's story, but I'll let her tell you all about it. My name is Taylor Ava Fryer. I'm 34 years old, and my current location is Valencia, Spain. I've been living abroad for a little over 11 years now. I always knew that it's something that I was going to do, and I've designed my life to live this way. It was definitely written like this from the beginning for me. I've lived a lot of places abroad, um, and I think that there's a difference between visiting a place and knowing a place. So the places that I know that I've lived is London, Spain, South Africa, Vietnam, Thailand, Serbia, Vienna, and Mexico. But my life currently, I'm designing, is living between Mexico and Paris. I asked Taylor to describe to all of us her childhood and to reflect upon if the environment and the manner in which she was raised planted the seeds for her international life. So I'm from Oakland, California, and I'm very lucky because I had a pretty defining moment earlier in my life that I can tell you for sure shaped with discernment how I've decided to live now. So my grandfather was a true Francophile, and he went to Paris every year for 30 years. So much of his life was there. So much of his life was in San Francisco. So I'd say he lived kind of a dual life. And it made more sense to me, especially as I got older, that he lived this way because he was growing up, you know, way before civil rights in the United States. So there were so many people of color and especially black people who were moving out of the States then, going to places like France, going to places like Paris, where they could live a better life. And it happened that at that time, especially those who are living creative lives, like the Josephine Bakers of the world, like the James Baldwins of the world, um, and like my grandpa, they were going there and finding solace and finding fun. And it was important to him that not only he go, but he invite and bring all the important people in his life. So my mom had gone to Paris quite a lot in her life. And after a bypass surgery, six weeks after he had heart surgery, he took my sister and I, and I was 11 at that time. Now, it's important to say that we can never really tell for sure what's going to influence a child. It might be a very insignificant moment. And in the case of going to Paris, it's funny because my sister went with us and it didn't spark anything for her. But for me, it was a life changing experience. And I remember it was the first time that I had that kind of um, wonder, this idea of knowing and seeing and feeling and eating and everything was so new to me at that time. And I realized, wow. There are so many different ways to live. So since that time, I've been pretty enamored with 
Paris specifically, but in general, my passion for understanding how others live, how I might stretch myself wider as an individual, was rooted in those early moments and a great gift that my grandpa gave me. I asked Taylor if she had the opportunity and interest to attend university. And if so, where did she attend and what did she study? And of course, did she have the opportunity and interest to study abroad? I attended Spelman College in Atlanta. And by the time I started there, I already knew what I wanted to study, which was the international studies and international development major. It's funny because it was just coming out at that time. So I think there were less than 10 students that did it. And I won't forget trying to tell my parents that that's what I wanted to study because they were pretty perplexed by that. And they had no idea what it was. And uh, it's not a business degree. It's not an economics degree. What are you going to do with it? But I knew that's what I wanted because luckily I had this North Star quite early in life that I wanted to travel and understand people. So I went with international studies with a minor in Spanish, and I wanted to make sure that I was studying abroad for sure, somewhere Spanish speaking. And I took full advantage of that. I spent six months abroad in Buenos Aires. Now, I have had several guests study in Buenos Aires and I have one guest who is currently living in Buenos Aires, that is Jamila. And let me tell you, the experiences between some of my guests studying and living are kind of night and day. But that's the whole thing about this show and about life, having varied experiences, okay? You can't just be like, that city, that country is off my list and all this foolishness I hear people spout on the internet all the time because people have different experiences. So in that vein, I asked Taylor to describe to all of us her time in Buenos Aires. I'm grateful for the opportunity to have gone to Buenos Aires because we were entering a recession in the U.S. So the more and more I live, the more I realize how significant it was that I was able to see it. I think similar to a lot of people in their study abroad experience, I, I have a few thoughts about it. I went with a pretty white group, <laughs> to be honest. There were only two black kids in our entire program, and it does make a difference. It does make a difference at that age when you're spending a lot of time with a very small group of people. Most of the students were from the East Coast, pretty affluent, um, pretty conservative, and it was hard to make those long-term connections. However, one thing that was saving grace for me in living in Buenos was that I realized that I was not just limited to that small group. I got lucky because I was living with a host mom, so I was staying in a house with a lovely lady named Silvia. And very early on, she took in another student. So I was staying with another student too, but she was a master's student and I really liked her. So I ended up going to hang out with master's students during my study abroad and they were really cool. 
Buenos Aires is a fun place to study um, because being a student means that you're in the thick of the political attitudes of the city. It's a really politically motivated place. Um, I find that especially the people there, young and old, are outspoken about the desires they want from government. And I find that to be very positive. Mostly in Latin America, there is a common thread around at one point or another, these governments having military dictatorships and therefore, at some point, uprisings from the people. In Argentina, I got really interested in understanding more about the economic crises that happened and the struggle that people have had to go through in a very contemporary sense. This idea that one day, just like today, one day, You decide to go to the bank to withdraw some money like we do every week, probably. And there's just no money there. And your money's just all of a sudden gone. To hear about this and it not be from the history books, to literally be able to speak to people who have gone through that um, is very harrowing, but humbling. And to sit with those who can share those experiences with you as a student, I found it really important to be there and really enriching to hear how others live. The Spanish aspect of Buenos um, <laughs> was great, but it started off pretty rocky for me. I'd been taking Spanish in school for many years before I studied abroad. So I walked in with a huge confidence that I shouldn't have had. I walked in and I have this memory of uh, them deciding to do interviews with each student one by one and using that interview to place you into whatever Spanish level you're supposed to be in. And I had a board of three people and I came in all confident. Everything's good. And after the preliminary questions where, you know, they ask, what's your name? What do you study? How do you feel about being here? Then we got into the Spanish, and I realized, I don't know what they're saying. I can't respond to any of this. And after a while, it was just a mute interview. They would ask me a question, and I just wouldn't respond. I was so shocked. And I remember I left the interview and just cried. What have I gotten myself into? I came to a country, and I can't speak the language, and I thought I could. What am I going to do? I think this is a very healthy rite of passage. It was my first experience living long-term abroad. And just like most people, there's a point of panic. And that was mine. And I always shared this story because it's okay for that to happen. And luckily, I was placed in the lowest class. And I started from there. So I would say I just started learning Spanish when I got to Buenos. Because language... It is less about the classroom and it's more about the confidence. You just have to be okay with looking like an idiot. You have to be okay with getting it wrong because if you are, then there's nothing stopping you from speaking. You just have to go for it. So I have a lot of fond memories of Buenos for those reasons. Being a student, hanging out with grad students late at night, listening to jazz, going to listen to reggae music. Oh, and of course, the culture of tango. I was really mesmerized by that. I admit I didn't get to dance a lot of it. But when you learn more about tango in Argentina and the history of it, if you can just be around to watch the dancing, 
it is it is magical. The best tango clubs only open around two to three a.m. So I would say that Buenos is like the one of the New York cities of South America because you can stay out all night. So it was a great place to be a student. I asked Taylor to describe to us her journey to moving abroad. So when I was graduating from Spelman, it was the recession and it was extremely difficult to get a job. So the opportunities that I had to live abroad, because I wanted to move immediately, they really weren't available. I needed to find a way to make some money. So luckily for me, I was able to do that pretty quickly. I got an internship on Wall Street that summer that I graduated from school. So two days after graduation, I was in New York City for the summer. And I got it against all odds because I did not study finance. But simultaneously, I landed a great role at Google in California and had a secured position to start in the technology industry. So I had a free summer in New York to hang out and party and for the first time have a paycheck. And then right after that, I moved back to California. Now, because I'm from California and I'm from the Bay, which is where my job was based, I couldn't help but be a twinge disappointed because I didn't expect to be back there and I didn't expect to be back there so soon. And I thought that I knew everything there was about my hometown. So it seemed like I, despite being very grateful for the job, was going in the wrong direction for how I saw my life. And again, finally making money, I would say opened my world up in a way that I didn't expect. I think it's very common if you really like traveling to maybe feel let down if you have to, for some reason, go back to where you were before. But I did find a lot of beauty in going home because one, having a job and having finances opens up a world of options that I didn't have before. That's number one. Number two, I was able to spend more time with my family. And number three, I got to take advantage of making a whole new set of friends over the three-year period that I was working. And ironically, um, I'm going to be a bridesmaid in my friend's wedding in two weeks. And I met her my first day at Google. And that's the case with a lot of my great friends. I met them coming back. So that being said, I was happy with where I was, but I never lost that girl looking out the window, a feeling that there's something out there for me, that there's something greater that I want that I'm not going to forget about. So I was clear from the beginning that even though I was living my life in the Bay, I was saving money to go. And in my case, I was saving money to go to grad school. So I did that. I, towards the end, was getting pretty fed up with the position I was in. I wasn't being offered the mobility that I thought I was going to. This is just a word for those who find themselves in this position, just a word of encouragement. If you have a plan, if you start putting a plan in place, it is that shining light that no one can see that makes it easier for you to get through the day. So when my boss would say something inappropriate to me that I didn't like, 
I wouldn't get upset about it, especially towards the end when I knew I had the money for grad school. He would say it and I would go, okay. And that's it because I had a plan. So after about two years, I knew I had enough money for grad school. And I found that the jobs that I really wanted to get into, like for example, at the United Nations, you needed minimum a master's degree in something to do with international development. I figured it was going to be a huge risk to leave the job I was at. And so I wanted to position myself as strongly as possible as a candidate to re-enter the job market when I was ready. So within the company I was in, I was given access to a database that was really an HR database that ranked every single known university in the world because it's such a global company and you need to know how each university stacks up. And it had four or five rows, elite, top tier, mid tier, low tier. And then it spliced it into business categories, engineering categories, etc. So I knew that whatever school that I chose to go to for grad school, it needed to be in that elite category. It needed to be putting me in the best position possible to say, hey, I have something more than passion. I have a degree too, and this is going to be an internationally recognized degree. So I ended up applying only to two schools because there were only two that met all the criteria that I wanted. And I ended up getting into the International Development Masters of Science program at University College London. Now, I had never heard of University College London before. However, it was it's always a top 10 global institution. So it ranks top 10 in the world up there with Oxford, Yale, Harvard, etc. And yet I hadn't heard of it. So once all of those things came together, I had my finances together. I had my plan together. I got into the, the program. I got the business skills I was looking for. I got the network I was looking for. Then I knew it was time to say goodbye. And I knew that when I was leaving, I was going for sure. And I haven't lived in the U.S. since. Instead, it's just been an adventure of curating my life the way I like. Taylor has saved up enough money to go to grad school, and she is now taking off for that adventure. I asked her to describe what it was like finally leaving to go to grad school abroad. I knew when I was leaving that I was leaving for good. However, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have anything lined up other than I'm going to grad school for a year. Other than that, I didn't have the answers. But what I did have was discernment that I was going. So because of that, I did a really good job of observing that in real ways and celebrating. I always joke, but it is true. I had five parties for quitting my job. (laughs) One was the day or the weekend that I got into grad school, because then we knew. One was giving the six weeks notice. Another one was we had a whole fun week, which was my last week at the job. Another one was turning in my badge. And then I had a blowout celebration for my family and friends. That is five. In addition, I realized that 
Well, I didn't realize. I always knew that California was magnificent. People come from all over the world to see the Golden Gate Bridge. People come from all over the world to see the vineyards in Napa Valley. So I decided to make myself a California bucket list of the 10 things, because I only had time for 10 things, that I really wanted to do that I just hadn't gotten around to. Sometimes when you are in a place for so long, you take it for granted and you think it's always there. I can do it whenever. It's not the case. You should go do it. And that's what I did. So I went on road trips with my mom. There's a place in California called Highway One, which is a long highway that you see in the movies where people wear um, scarves and get a drop top red Corvette and it's beautiful ocean on one side and mountains on the other side. I decided to road trip it. I wanted to go to this spiritual institute called Esalen, which is very famous. Um, anyone from the Dalai Lama to Byron Katie to um, many huge spiritual practitioners go there to do workshops, Esther Perel, for example. And I wanted to see it. They have this massive garden and also these famous hot tubs that are etched into a cliff that are very limited access. But if you go between two and four in the morning, you can go dip and see the ocean for under $50 at the time. I went to Universal Studios. I walked in a breast cancer awareness walk around my town's lake. I did all these things. So by the time that I was leaving, things were very wrapped up. And importantly, I went to Bali for two weeks before I showed up in London. I felt like this was an important thing to do because I recognized how uptight I was in needing to do a great job at the job I was in. The best way I can depict this to you is the first day that I did not have a job anymore, I did what I always do. I woke up, I turned over, I reached under my pillow for my phone, which I always kept under my pillow, very bad. And I started scrolling my email because that's what I'd been doing for years. And for the first time, my email didn't work. And there was a bit of a panic. Oh my God, what's happening? Has some, and then it took me a moment to be like, wait a minute, you're free. And I realized that if I went with that kind of energy into my next blessing that I prayed for and saved for and dreamed of, if I went directly from that to there, I wouldn't have an open heart enough to receive the significance of the moment. So I wrapped up everything in California, had all my celebrations, I did my bucket list, then I went to Bali for two weeks. By the time I arrived in London, I was ready. London and starting school there means that you probably arrive in September. And what I couldn't have been prepared for, even though I knew and everybody does, is that weather. Especially as a California girl, we're not really equipped <laughs> most places because <laughs> we have sun. But nothing might have prepared me for the darkness when I arrived. I think cold, I think rain, I can do it. But I think it was the darkness 
that I remember most when I arrived. And I think the act of picking up your life and moving somewhere new takes a certain amount of courage, but your courage can be a bit faulty if you show up into something new and it's not exactly what you imagine. You know, it's kind of like buyer's remorse. Oh my gosh, what I do? I spent all this money, now I'm here, and I don't like the house. There might have been a little moment when it was dark outside at noon that I thought, did I make a mistake? But the rite of passage in this world of travel, this decision for me to live abroad meant that early in my time in doing this, I knew that I needed to have pillars of values and reasons why I decided to do this in the first place. And I highly recommend that anyone who wants to do journeys or lifestyles abroad, think deeply about why you're doing it. Because those are the pillars that you stand on when things aren't always going well. So in my case, luckily I had that. Why do you want to live abroad, Taylor? I want to stretch myself wider and understand how others live. I want to be of service and I can only be of service if I understand this better. So that was helpful in countering the darkness of arriving in London. And then when you get some friends, my life took off. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you have, please support this labor of love because it is labor nonetheless. You can support this solo indie podcast by becoming a member of the Flourish in the Foreign Buy Me a Coffee membership, where you can subscribe to support the podcast on a monthly basis. You can also give one-time support via Buy Me a Coffee as well. And you can do either one at buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign. Support this podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you listen to the podcast. And if you listen on Spotify, you can also leave comments on each episode and even answer some of the poll questions I've created for certain episodes. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family and even the colleagues you kind of like. This podcast continues to exist and thrive due to listeners like you. Thank you so much for your continued support. Now, back to the episode. So I've also had several guests who have attended grad school or studied abroad for some extensive period of time in London. I've had several guests do study abroad in law school in London, masters in London. So I asked Taylor to describe to us what her experience attending grad school in London was like. So my program was a master's of science in international development from University College London. I had been coming from a small college. Uh, Spelman College is less than 2,000 students. And this was the opposite. This is called the global university of the UK. So I think it was 80,000 students. And I was worried about how I might deal with that. But actually, the institute that I was in was very small and intimate. 
and I just loved it. I think there was probably 50 students in our institute, which made it easy for us to know our professors, to never feel that we were without help, and to always feel like we had resources. So international development is great because it's interdisciplinary. There are a lot of different focuses that you can pick and choose from because the idea of looking at development on a global scale means let's look at this economy and let's measure different ways in which it's flourishing or not. We can look at that through the lens of climate change. We can look at that through lenses of history. We can look at that through lenses of art. We can look at that through many different lenses. And so I like that I got to feel like I was tailoring my classes to what it is that I wanted to know more about that I felt would be helpful and beneficial for me when I was going to go back to work. So additionally, I just had the time of my life in that program, mostly because of the friends that I made. We're studying the global community and living in a global community, which made it really fun. I felt like I was a citizen of the world. One of my favorite things to do in the morning was to take the metro to school just because the tube you would hear 10 different languages being spoken just on your ride to school and then you go there and there are people from all over the world one thing I appreciated about my program was it wasn't just westerners I was a westerner sure there were other people from Europe but there were quite a lot of people from Latin America we had a few African students as well and from Southeast Asia So when I say it was really integrated, a lot of the perspectives were different. Everyone had something to contribute and we were all there for the same cause, for the same, you know, passion. And that's one of the beautiful things about masters. I think it's a collective of those who specifically have your interests. And so you can nerd about it all day. And after you finish class, you go into London and you live there. I fell in love with London while I was a student because outside of class, there was so much to see and do. And I got to find my way into all kinds of different communities. I'm really passionate about dance. I love Kizomba and I learned how to Kizomba in London. So every Tuesday until three in the morning, I was with the Caribbean communities because that's what we were doing. Then you have your academic communities. So it was a great way to spread out and find different interests because whatever I was into, I could find those who were into it. My program was one year long. And like I said, I actually didn't have an idea of what I was going to do after. I think getting through the program itself was pretty rigorous. So I was just focused on making sure that I was presenting my best work, especially because British academia is significantly different than American academia. And I can say for sure that I learned how to be a better, stronger, much more clear writer in living in the UK. You get less chances to get it right in the UK when it comes to school, because the example I can give you is I recall in classes in university, there are, let's say, five things that compile your grade. 
It would be your attendance. It would be essays. It would be a report that you write. It would be a speech you have to give. These things. In the UK, it's literally one essay. That's your grade. So come to class every day. Listen, take notes. And at the end, you'll write one essay and you better not mess it up because if you do, you have to take the class over. So for someone who had just paid for her degree in pounds, which by the way, one pound at that time was $1.82. So I was paying for almost double (laughs) for my degree. I was more focused on just getting it right and getting the degree. So once I did, I thought, okay, I should probably leave London because it's getting very expensive. By that time, I had already gotten a part-time job because I was running out of money. I got a part-time job at a startup based out of San Francisco, and they tasked me with launching the international sector of their business. So I was a one-woman show based out of London. I would work two or three times a week in the mornings, and then I would go to school full-time to get myself through the program. So yes, when I finished the program, I thought, I would love to stay in Europe though. Why don't I go to Spain? Why don't I try this place? Why don't I try that place? However, very quickly, fate just rushed in. One of my Spelman sisters, who is a U.S. diplomat, was doing her first tour abroad, and she was given Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And she called me and she said, hey, I'm going to be going to Vietnam soon. And State Department, they do really great with real estate. She got a three-bedroom, three-bath apartment in a five-star hotel in the heart of Ho Chi Minh City, rent-free. And she said, do you want to just come to Ho Chi Minh? So that's what I did. So before I had all the answers as to what I was going to do, I had a little part-time job and I had an invitation to my next destination. All right, y'all. See, when I tell you, Taylor be living her life. Okay, Taylor be living her life. We all need to aspire to be a little bit more like Taylor. So she is now in Vietnam. And so I asked her to describe to us what her time in Vietnam was like. I had never planned to stay in Southeast Asia for a year. I thought I was going to see my friend for a month or two, but... With many of my stories, they all start the same, which was, I thought it was going to be this. It ended up being this. And at this point, I always roll with it because I feel like the blessing always materializes and it's my job to have the courage to see it through so that I can see it happen. So I was in a great situation. When I showed up to Vietnam, I hadn't really thought so much about how different an environment I was going into. I just jumped into it. But when I say it's a completely different part of the world, it really is. The airport in Ho Chi Minh City is fine. But the pro tip that one should know that I learned eventually is as quick as you can get off the plane, run ahead of everyone as far as you can go to try to be as far up in the line for your on-arrival visa as possible. There's only one window (laughs) 
to get an on-arrival visa, there's maybe one to two people working there or less or none. And you have to wait and sit there to get these things. It might have changed by now, but when I was a rookie and I arrived for the first time, I didn't know that. And I had to wait in the airport for maybe two, two and a half hours. By the time I was leaving there, maybe a year later, I had been back to that airport five or six times. And you would just see me running, 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 running. And I felt like a pro. That's when I knew I had lived somewhere. Like, I know how to do this airport thing. But again, I thought I was going for a short amount of time. So I arrived in Ho Chi Minh. I met my friend. I felt like it was a great time that we could be supporting one another because she was starting a new job in a completely different place. And I was just finishing a huge milestone of my master's. And we love each other. So we were together. And that's where another adventure started. I quickly realized that in working part-time, I was working really different hours in Vietnam. I would spend my day enjoying the city, but then I would have to work at night. And after a while of accumulating these U.S. dollars, I realized in a city where I can get a great dinner for three U.S. dollars and a manicure pedicure for five U.S. dollars... I should be out living my life right now. I just finished getting my master's. I deserve rest and I deserve fun and I have the means to do it. So when it came to renewing my contract at this startup, I actually just respectfully passed and I took my money and I thought, let's go see the world. Southeast Asia is great because similar to Europe, So many countries are clustered together and close by, and it's really inexpensive to go see them. So I started by packing all my stuff in my room in Ho Chi Minh City, getting my backpacker's backpack, and taking off. So Vietnam would be my base, but me and my backpack went all over Southeast Asia, and I was surprised what I found. I ended up doing... The things that I wanted. For example, I ended up living on an island in Thailand for three months. I had gone to a tantric sexuality workshop that was supposed to be four days. And I ended up meeting a full community of spirituals and mystics and just fun people, interesting people. And I made a home for myself on the island. When I left the island, I ended up going um, for a visa run in Malaysia that was just meant to be a few days. And I ended up having the best, and to this day, my most favorite meal that I've ever had in a very small restaurant with no Wi-Fi and no air conditioning. And I decided to stay for the food. I decided I wanted to know more history about Cambodia, so I went there. I got mugged the second day, but I went there. So literally my backpack and I had an adventure and when we needed to feel some security or we just needed a rest, we would go back to our home base in Vietnam. And I did that for the greater part of a year until I was running out of money and thought, better go find a new job. Taylor's time in Vietnam ends and... 
as we're recording this, I was like, girl, what? Where did you go next? Not too far from where we are right now, Christine. I ended up landing a job at the World Bank doing communications. I was a communications lead there. And I thought actually that my living abroad moment was either over or on pause because the World Bank is in Washington, D.C. However, when I had my first meeting with my director, she said, so I hear you're living in Vietnam. Are you planning to work there? And I thought, I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) And so I realized that it was a possibility to continue remotely. So I did a brief stint in Washington, D.C. for two weeks, went there to meet my team. And then I just went right to Spain. I had always wanted to go to Spain. I had just plans to be there. But by this time, I had friends in different places And it just seemed like a really good idea. I spent a month in the Canary Islands with one of my girlfriends who lives there. And then I went to Sevilla, where I stayed for four or five more months. So Taylor finds herself in Spain, in Sevilla, which is in Andalusia in the south. And I asked her to describe to us what was her experience in Sevilla, which I was really fascinated to hear because, again, I've had uh, guests who have studied or worked in Sevilla, and they've had a variety of experiences. So I was really curious to know what was her experience with the Andaluces. So Sevilla was a place that I wanted to go because I had been reading about the history of the Moors. And I thought, how interesting. Specifically, I had just read something about textiles that sparked my curiosity. So in, in Moorish tradition, or used to be, they were known for having these beautiful blue textiles. And I thought to myself, why haven't I seen so much of that in my time in Spain when I had been other times in my life? And it turns out that Sevilla has the largest collection of them. One of my uncles, my dad's best friend, he used to live in Sevilla for 30 years. And he called me because my parents told him I was there. And he said, listen, I've got a number for you. This number is 30 years old. I don't know if it's still the number, but this is one of my dear friends. I haven't talked to her in years, but if you call her tell her you know me, she'll take care of you. What do I have to lose? So I called this woman. This woman is the best. She's an African-American lady, came to Sevilla 30 years ago to teach English at the university. She met her husband, a German philosopher who came to the university 30 years ago to teach philosophy. They get together, they have two children, And I called her and she said, oh, yes, why don't we meet for coffee? I go and meet her. I have this great time. And she said, I invited the family. Here comes her husband and his two colleagues. Here comes her two kids and their three dogs and three friends. And I end up at this communal table in the middle of the cobblestone roads in Sevilla with what ended up being my family. She said, 
so where are you staying? And I said, I've been staying at this Airbnb. And she said, well, you know that Semana Santa is coming up soon. Have you checked if you can stay? I said, what's Semana Santa? Saints Week. Now we all know Saints Week is one of the biggest religious occasions um, in Spain and Sevilla is known for it. So I go home and I ask my Airbnb, oh, would it be okay if I stay longer? She said, no, it's Semana Santa. So I was actually about to become homeless and didn't know because I wasn't aware of what Saints Week was and what was about to happen. And she said, no problem. You can come live with us. So in the span of one sit down with one woman, I had a new family and a new place to stay. So I move in to this home. And here's the thing about real estate that I've noticed living in many places. If it's amazing real estate, the person is either A, very wealthy or has lived there a long time. And this family has just lived in the most amazing place for a long time. I knew it was going to be special because it had, you know, that one epic kind of metal door that has a knocker that doesn't turn, but the knocker's the size of a melon and they're big keys that you use to open the door. It was one of those places. This was a six-story house. It wasn't big or wide. It was skinny and looked like a riad. And so there was light coming in from the top of it and plants exploding from inside, just growing up the walls. She invites me to her home and I stayed on the roof in a small room with very little in it, with a little square window. And every day her daughter would come upstairs and she'd bring a mattress upstairs. She would open the door to the roof and put the mattress down so that I could have siesta on the roof. And this home was just lively and full of love. Every morning, the tradition was the husband would go to the panaderia to get food for breakfast for the whole family. And we would sit and have breakfast together and everybody would be speaking German and Spanish and English. Uh, one of the kids was learning Mandarin. It was just a global table and I'm just there. I'm just there. And the moment that I remember was walking into her kitchen and it was covered in blue tiles. And I said, oh my God. What is this? She said, oh, the Moors, they used to have these tiles, but they got, I'm like, of course I know. She said, yeah, they got rid of most of them. But for some reason, this room has been preserved. So just like all of these little alignments happen for me and just arriving in Sevilla and falling into a community and getting to be there for a really auspicious occasion. Semana Santa, when it did come, I think it's something everyone should see at least once. It is a series of processions and events all week where, and it's very old and it's very privileged to walk in it. At first, you'd be kind of affronted by it because of these robes. They look very similar to the KKK, but you realize quickly that it has nothing to do with that. In fact, the KKK derived their robes 
from something much older like this, because the pinnacle in the hat represents being closer to God with the point facing the sky. I remember these processions with people wearing robes of red and purple and blue and green and black, which represent some of the oldest brotherhoods in the country. And they would carry these candles that were the size of grown men or even higher. They would carry them on their backs. And many would walk barefoot, carrying these massive platforms with huge human-sized sculptures of the Virgin Marys and the saints. And this is happening all the time. It just looked like something out of a movie. You gather at night to see these processions. And my favorite part was there are special singers that are appointed to come out on the terraces. And the fun part is you don't know where they're going to come from, but they emerge from terraces and they sing down to the people and they sing down to the Virgin and they sing down to the saints. It's just like a party every night, but a party of devotion. When I think of Sevilla, because of when I was there, I think mostly of devotion because that's what I saw in the streets. That's what I saw in living with a family that was devoted to one another. And I also certainly felt like I saw that in the religious aspects of the city. Taylor is on the move again, this time leaving Sevilla. So I asked her, where did you go next? I left Sevilla because my job called. And up until that point, we had been working on a massive conference that was meant to take place in Istanbul. However, at that time, Istanbul was going through a political crisis and bombs were going off in and around the airports. So as a communications person, a part of my job is coming up with strategies around how we're going to communicate these events to the public that we're putting on. And it seems like a huge security risk to say to the world, we're going to have 500 or 1,000 important people gathering here when there are explosions happening. It just wasn't sound. So six weeks before the event, we had to change it from Istanbul to Venice, Italy, which sounds great because Venice is beautiful, but as a writer, it's a big mess because one has nothing to do with the other. So I had to fly back to Washington, D.C. and work with my team to transfer an entire conference that was meant to be in Turkey to Italy. And it was a pretty abrupt thing that happened. So I didn't get to quite say goodbye to Sevilla. So I haven't seen Sevilla since then, but I have warm memories. And so I went to the States for six weeks to finish my job. And once my contract was finished, I have to say, I remember being quite burnt out because it was a lot of work to do in a really short amount of time. However, once I was done, I always want to say that I want to highlight prioritizing rest. I know that's something important to you too. And when I finish doing something that is so intense, I think if possible, rest is the priority so I can be my best for the next thing. So I can show up 100% for whatever's next. So after that, I went to 
California for one week. I got a message from one of my friends who said, I have an extra ticket to Beyonce in London. It's next week. Can you come? No one says no to that. And so, <laughs> so very quickly into my resting period, I'm out again. I'm back in Europe much sooner than I expected, purely out of the ethics of needing to say yes to a Beyonce experience. And then I continue to stay in Europe. A lot of what happens in my journey has to do with invitations or feelings. I'll go to a place because of something I've seen or a feeling, but I'll also go because of invitations, which is a nice way to land in a new place. So simultaneously, in addition to wanting to go to that concert, one of my friends who I had met on that island in Thailand was living in Germany. She was living in a town called Konstanz, which is beautiful. It's on the border of Switzerland. And she said, hey, we're looking to have an English speaker live with me and my roommates for the summer. And I immediately thought of you. Would you be interested in coming? And I thought, why not? Sounds fantastic. She also said, I'm really sorry. We'll have to charge you 300 euros for the summer. And I just thought to myself, that's not a sign. I don't know what is. So I ended up back in Europe. I went to Constance and I spent the summer there and then I continued on. So Taylor ends up in South Africa and I had to ask her how and why was she drawn to South Africa and what made her stay? So after I did Germany, I was in Vienna for a little bit, and then I got an invitation to Serbia, funnily enough, and I'm still thawing from that experience. It was so cold and snowy there. But fate stepped in, and one of my girlfriends, who I had met in Vietnam, she's South African, and we'd become great friends, and we were Skyping one day, back when people were still using Skype, and she said to me, okay, I have to tell you something. I'm pregnant. I said, congratulations. And she asked me to be her baby's godmother. And she asked me to come to South Africa to help her through the birth of her child. And I could. So I did. I flew from Serbia to South Africa. And I was meant to be there a month, maybe two months. But I noticed that there was a feeling. I started off living in Joburg, Johannesburg. And I have to tell you, to this day, it was such a culture shock to me. I didn't think that going to an African country would give me more culture shock than going to a European or a Southeast Asian country. But everything there was a shock to the system. And I say that in a positive way too. The first thing that happened to me was before I could even out, get out the airport, someone walked up to me and asked if they could help me with my luggage. And they said, welcome home. I didn't realize that that was going to affect me at all. But as a black American and my first time on the continent with the intentions of spending some time for someone to say welcome home, it hit me different. I felt something. And 
to this day, I'm very touched by the idea of being welcomed places. But to be welcomed home when you're a transient person is particularly beautiful and moving. The second thing I noticed about living in Joburg is it wasn't so cheap and it wasn't so easy. I found it to be pretty dangerous. In fact, it was the first place I'd lived where I had to think about security in a completely different light. I would have to consider where I was walking at all times. I would have to consider trying to avoid just things that were very normal and you have to learn quite fast out there. However, the upsides were so up that I ended up staying a year. South African people are some of the most amazing people in the world. And I always say to entrepreneurs, hey, if you're trying to get a job off the ground, don't go to New York City, go to Johannesburg because there's a grit and a desire to do well and be successful there that you'll get done two years worth of work in six months. They're some of the best and brightest and most brilliant people I've ever met in Johannesburg and they're looking for opportunities. I also just fell into a culture of welcome. Johannesburg is a culture of extending invitations. And at first, I was a little wary of that because I guess I wasn't used to getting so many invitations so quickly. I thought, okay, this could go wrong. But then I just realized people want to know you and people like to gather there. There's a culture of community and gathering that is really infectious and something that not only do you want to be a part of, but certainly something that I've learned just as a a person, something that I want to bring more into my life. How might I be the gatherer? How might I be the person that extending invitations to new people? Because to this day, some of my closest friends in the world are from Joburg. And they were the ones that I met very early. And they were the ones who, without hesitation, were like, you're here, come with us. We're going to look after you. However, after that first year, The amount of security, because I don't want to understate it, it's probably one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a woman. And that's a data point. That's not just my opinion. That's actually like something you can look up. I was a bit exhausted by having to worry so much all the time. The best example I can give you is my first year living in Johannesburg, I went home for a week to visit my mom. And I was literally driving my car in Oakland with my friend. It was a really sunny day. It was really, really hot. And so my friend was like, hey, why don't we roll down the windows? And I was like, no. And she thought, why? And I was like, you can. And she said, why not? And I realized, oh, no, I have been trained to feel like I can't roll down the windows at a stoplight. But the truth is, in some places, you can't. And I just felt like there were just too many ways that I had to be so wary that I couldn't lean in and relax into the experience. So I ended up moving to Cape Town, which is one of the most beautiful places in the entire world. I was inspired one weekend while I was there. I met two women on the plane, and I was going to a jazz festival. And by the end of the plane ride, we just loved each other. And they said, 
oh, hey, well, I'm taking my daughter up to University of Cape Town. Have you ever been there before? And I said, no, I haven't. And they said, okay, well, come up. We're going we're gonna to take you to lunch there. Another invitation. So I went to lunch at University of Cape Town, and I had never seen a more beautiful campus in my life. It was almost poetic. It was rolling staircases with kind of colonial style red brick buildings with shocking ivy growing up the sides and in the shadow of a whole mountain. And I just thought to myself, wow, I've never seen anything like this. And in terms of, of people, I'd often outside of going to an HBCU, but spending time at campuses, I'd always felt like I was a black body occupying a white space. So I was very surprised to go to this campus and not just see black people and not just see white people, but to see so many Asian people, Indian people. There were so many, so many different colors. It was truly just rainbow nation, like they say. And I thought, wow, what would it be like to spend more time here? So that was the beginning of my academic journey, which is a longer story. But I ended up moving to Cape Town and continuing to work and going to school. So I was working full time and going to school full time. And it was the first time in this entire experience of traveling that I'm sharing with you that I felt I've come home. So I decided to get my visa. I got a five-year critical skills visa, which allows people who have special abilities or acumen to come and contribute to the economy because of the brain drain. So I got my visa. I fell in love. I got an apartment. And I became a part of a community. And for four years, I was in South Africa until the pandemic, but I thought it was going to be for the rest of my life. Even though it wasn't, it was a significantly defining time for me to put my bags down and feel like I could just be somewhere and accumulate things and grew friendships that I could count on. I'm currently curating my life to live between Mexico and Paris. And I'm just so excited about how it's going. But people always ask me how I ended up in Mexico because I don't live in, you know, Playa del Carmen. I don't live in Mexico City. I live in a place called San Miguel de Allende, which is a smaller town and not actually one that I had heard of before I showed up. However, after spending the pandemic in Cape Town, I was pretty drained by the end of it. It was the strictest lockdown in Africa. And I think the South African government was trying to make an early example, you know, and and kind of lead the charge on this. And the pandemic was handled pretty well but it made for a lot of stress. We're talking army tanks in the street. We're talking you need passes to get certain places. I was sharing a small space with a partner. And again, I was going to school for my doctorate full-time and I was working full-time at the United Nations. So by the end, when I thought I was traveling back home, one day before my flight, 
I got COVID. And this is before we had a vaccine. So the end, even the end was pretty devastating. I ended up having to stay another month before I could travel. And when I was cleared to travel, I showed up to the Bay Area very sick. But I feel also spiritually quite drained by that time. I didn't feel like I had that zest for life. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was completely burnt out and I needed a break. So I stayed home for maybe two or three months. And it was important that I do that because there's nothing like the nourishment of your family. But also just mentally, I needed to regroup myself. You don't want to be out on the road or making huge decisions if you aren't feeling solid and sustained and like you have a good foundation. So once I did do that and I did do the work, went into therapy, started exercising again, started writing again, I thought, all right, now I'm ready to go somewhere. I don't know where though. The immediate task in front of me was finishing my doctorate. So I thought, I'll just go on a writing sabbatical for a month. That sounds good. That sounds doable. I'll go to Mexico City. Mexico City is a place I'd never been. I've never been to Mexico, which I felt was silly because there are neighbors. But I'd heard great things about the town. I had heard that it was a place for artists. I heard I'd be very inspired there. And it was affordable. Perfect. So one week before heading to Mexico City for my sabbatical, I was at a cafe in Oakland and I was chatting with a lady while we're waiting for our coffee. And it came up that I was going to Mexico. And she said, oh, you're going to Mexico. You know, when I was your age and she got very serious and I remember it because we were still wearing masks so I could only see her eyes bulging a bit. She said, I went to this small town with jewel-colored cafes and fountains hidden behind double doors and a rose-colored church in the heart of the city with magic bells and all these artists. And I just looked at her and thought, well, where is that at? It's not Mexico City. Where is it? (laughs) Because that sounds exactly like what I'm looking for. And she said it was called San Miguel de Allende. I'd never heard of it, but I looked it up on Instagram and it always shows the city square, which is what's called the parroquia, the rose colored church in the center of the town. And I just felt something. And after going through such a difficult time in my life, I had so much discernment and what I was feeling. It was just something. The next day I went on a hike with my girlfriends and I told them what happened. And I said, I'm changing my plans. This is where I'm going. I feel like something's going to happen to me there. I feel like something is waiting for me there. And my friends, since they know me well, they're like, yeah, go do it. Awesome. We love it. Text us when you figure out what's waiting for you there. And so that's what happened. After four years in South Africa, I did a brief stint at home. And here I am on a bus from Mexico City. I stayed in Mexico City one night and on the bus to a town where I know no one. 
and know nothing about. And I'm happy to be able to share with you that I was 100% right about going. San Miguel, in looking at my time there, I feel like I accomplished two years worth of life in eight months. And it was so clear from the beginning that this is where I was meant to be. I have been living there since that time. And it's somewhere that I think everyone should see it at least once as well. It is on paper. It's like the top travel city for kindness. And it's so true. In our friend groups, we talk about cities having words like New York City might be grid and LA might be aspire. San Miguel is kindness, 100%. The reason why a lot of people haven't heard of it, I think, is it's not a hot city. It's not like a hot and spicy city. It's actually a city that's known for retirees. Most people who live here are between, I'd say, 50 and 80 years old. For someone like me, for someone who's a writer, for someone who thrives with older people, it's perfect because it's a place of great nourishment and significant discussions about life. I think that our elders, and I don't even consider them elders, I just consider them my friends, have a lot to to share. And if we're smart, you're there to listen and receive it and forge friendships with people who are in different stages of their life. But outside of that, it is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And I can say that it's the most beautiful place in Mexico that I've ever been. It's an intimate town with cobblestone roads and kind of water-colored buildings, the colors of sand and sunset. It's very safe. It's very merry. (laughs) People are just happy most of the time and the food cannot be beat. So my first year in San Miguel, I accomplished a lot. I fell in love. I created a short film. I ended up catapulting my small business. I ended up doing a TED Talk. I did many things and it just makes me more excited to get back there. So after having committed myself to what I thought was the rest of my life in South Africa, in a short amount of time, life changes. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you have, please support this labor of love because it is labor nonetheless. You can support this solo indie podcast by becoming a member of the Flourish in the Foreign Buy Me a Coffee membership, where you can subscribe to support the podcast on a monthly basis. You can also give one-time support via Buy Me a Coffee as well. And you can do either one at buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign. Support this podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you listen to the podcast. And if you listen on Spotify, you can also leave comments on each episode. 
and even answer some of the poll questions I've created for certain episodes. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family and even the colleagues you kind of like. This podcast continues to exist and thrive due to listeners like you. Thank you so much for your continued support. Now, back to the episode. If you haven't figured out by now, Taylor really is that girl. She really is. And I asked her to share with all of you some of the many things that she has going on, starting with a TEDx talk that she did. So my TEDx is called How to Affirm Black Voices Wherever You Are. And the idea was birthed because I made a short film my first year that I was living in San Miguel de Allende. And it was about celebrating the cultural and spiritual significance of Africa in Mexico. So keep in mind, I'm an art historian and I'm straight out of living in Africa for four years. And I come to a place where I see the African diaspora in everything, you know, the history of Africans coming to Mexico, 16th and 17th century Veracruz was one of the largest slave ports in the entire world. So how is it that when I came to Mexico and wanted to ask about Afro-Mexican culture, I was met with so many blank stares? And it wasn't a, we don't want to talk about it, blankness. It was very much a, we don't know what you're talking about response. So over time, I realized that a lot of this had more to do with the country's decisions to not formally recognize the group. Afro-Mexicans were only recently recognized formally in 2020. So since Footprints, which is the name of the short film, came out, it's been in three international film festivals, and it was seen by the director of TED, which led her to asking me to apply to be a TED speaker. How to Affirm Black Voices is Googleable. If you just type in my name, Taylor Ava Fryer, TEDx, it'll come up. I'm also really excited because this summer, a project I've been working on for a while has come to the public. It's called The Creative Life Book, and the focus is on radical self-love. So myself, along with 60 other women, co-authored a book that has to do with cultivating your world with magic and how to do that through radical self-love. It's done really well. It is now a number one international bestseller in four different countries, including the U.S. and Canada, and you can find it on Amazon.com. I have a small business and it's called Art Unknown. Art Unknown is a multidisciplinary production studio, and we focus on unconventional art, found in unconventional spaces to amplify black voices. And by that, I mean, we know what the African diaspora looks like in places like England or Brazil, but what does it look like in places like Mexico or Serbia or Vietnam? So we go to these places and we do a lot of large scale art installations. Last year, Art Unknown powered the largest climate-inspired installation in Mexico City, which was used to mark the opening of COP27, which is the UN climate change conferences that uphold the Paris agreements. This year, we also made history 
by bringing the first West African art installation to Burning Man. And next year, we will be doing another huge installation, which will be the largest in Mexico City, but an even larger one with Museo Sumaya in partnership. I am in my last month of my PhD. I'm so happy to say that at University of Cape Town in South Africa. Funnily enough, I am the first American student to get an art history degree from University of Cape Town. And my topic deals with the black female body archetype. So the idea of the black female body is being used quite a lot, of course, in contemporary African art. And the figure, Sarah Bartman, who is one of the most important figures that represent the dehumanization and maltreatment of black women in the 19th century, is being utilized quite strongly through contemporary art. But what ends up being problematic when it comes to art critique is there are different frameworks that exist that we use to define and manage and value this type of art. But most of those critiques and frameworks are Western frameworks. So does it become suitable to use those kinds of frameworks in this subject matter? So a part of my research is building a new framework that I think will help serve the contemporary art community. Sacrifice, grief. I asked Taylor to share with us her experiences of sacrifice and grief as she has lived this extraordinary life abroad. One thing that you and I have discussed quite a few times is understanding that living abroad or the decision to live elsewhere is not escapism. You still very much have to endure and experience the same things that you would at home, but maybe even more so, it's more heightened because you might be doing it with less resources or less community at first. So the grief that one might have at home, surrounded by community, is a grief that you still would have somewhere else, but not with community or not with the same community. There's a certain willingness that you have to make these decisions because it's a give and take. Some people, they're not into the idea of being without those comforts. But I think that the greatest joys that one can have from your couch, these joys are also experienced abroad and the griefs that one has, they also can be done abroad. It's a willingness, like what are you willing to do for it? And what sacrifices are you willing to make? Because there are sacrifices involved, certainly. I don't pretend that every day is perfect, but as I keep bringing up, because I think it's important, this idea of going back to the reasons why you made decisions to be abroad in the first place is what you lean on when you're thinking about the sacrifices you've made to be abroad. So one of my best friends moved abroad to Ghana this past year and her father has passed away. And the grief that I imagine she has to go through is severe, but 
Her decision to move to Ghana was years in the making. She'd always wanted to go. She just got engaged. She's got a 10-year-old daughter. She was a single mom for a long time and found a wonderful partner, and they're getting married, and they moved to Ghana. The support she probably would have received had she been home might have been more familiar, but the decision to go after her dreams, live in Ghana, and still go through grief, I've observed that there's a different kind of pulling that she's had to do to get the things she needs. Maybe it means support from people you don't know as well. Maybe it means changing the ways in which you're able to receive support. Does that mean you're doing more WhatsApping? Does that mean you're doing more, I don't know. She's had to diversify how she's receiving comfort, which is significantly different than what she'd have to do if she were at home. But overall, I found it to be really profound, the ways in which she's managed this. For example, I don't think she'd mind me saying, she called me one morning, I was here in Spain, and it was great to actually be on the same time zone for once because she needed to cry for 20 minutes. And her friends in the States aren't up at that time, but I am. So being a part of her global village, that's something that I was able to provide. This is not necessarily something she'd have to do if she was home. The service was still there. The comfort was still there. And unfortunately, with something like grief, it's not something that any of us get to avoid. So I guess the way in which I merge the idea of grief and living abroad is finding the way to get the things you need, even though it's not packaged in the way that you thought it would be. A lot of this abroad experience is getting scrappy to get the nourishment that you need so that you can live the life you want. I asked Taylor, how has her concept of her Black womanhood really evolved as she has been abroad? As a Black woman, there are two things. Number one... I have found that it took me a while to not expect aggression when I moved abroad. And when I say aggression, I don't necessarily mean being attacked. Could be. But like when I say aggression, I mean someone meaning harm to me, someone putting me down. It took me a while to not have the expectation that that was going to happen. For example, when I was living in Thailand, I ended up teaching a small dance class with one of my friends. He was from Israel and we were teaching bachata. So twice a week we would hold a little bachata class and people would come. One day he introduced me to his friend who was also from Israel. And she said something to me like, I want to learn some of those like black dances. And I said, what do you mean? And she's like, like, you, she started to demonstrate it to me. And immediately I tensed up and my mind just started racing because there are a million things I could have said. What do you mean by that? What do you mean African? What do you mean? And my friend Iran, he could see I was struggling um, because she was just the nicest, loveliest person. 
but why are you generalizing about me? Why are you trying to insult me? Like, where you? And he said, she wasn't trying to put you down or insult you. It's just that she's from a small town. She has a very small exposure to blackness and she's very interested. So what you're seeing is her excited. She's not trying to marginalize you. And as I got to know her, it was just that. It was so clear to me once I knew her, she wasn't trying to put me down. But because I've been so charged as a black woman in America, my expectation for a long time was that you don't mean well for me. You're offending me and you don't care. I have so many instances where I was wrong once I moved abroad about what people's intentions were towards me. And so I, I don't carry that like a torch anymore. I have over time spent more time listening and giving people the benefit of the doubt, which I think does nothing but one serve me in my spirit, but is also most often correct that it's not going to snowball into something that is racially driven or it's not going to snowball into something that's going to hurt my feeling. So that has been a pleasure, actually, because I feel lighter. I feel more free. I feel like there's more space inside of me for other things that deserve that space. Dating abroad. This is a little bit funny because this is a subject that Taylor and I and some of our other girlfriends have talked about extensively offline, especially this summer. This summer was, it was what it was. Okay. So I asked Taylor to describe to all of us her experience dating abroad. Well, dating abroad in general, I think is awesome and it's the way to go. It feels great to have a genuine exchange with people who are so different from you and yet the same as you. I think it has a lot to do with where you decide to do it. My experiences in dating in South Africa were incredibly positive. I found that the black men really love black women and go out of their way to be really chivalrous. They are sometimes more on the traditional side, which can work to your advantage. I met someone who really swept me off of my feet and I spent my first year in Johannesburg traveling the world with him. He took me to Paris and Spain and Amsterdam and Kenya and we went all over traveling because he knew that's what I liked to do. And I find the tradition of dating in Africa a double-edged sword. I love the idea of chivalry, and there certainly is a lot of chivalry and formality in terms of dating. One thing that I've noticed that a lot of women enjoy, and I'm just going to say this about South Africa because I haven't lived everywhere else in Africa, but my experience in dating African men has been that this whole back and forth on when we're official, this narrative that I hear a lot in the States, oh, how long do we date before we have to talk about being official? That's not a thing in South Africa. It's very much, I like you, we're together. Or you can say no, but it's very clear, very early 
And so there's no dance about it. And the women never have to ask. The guy usually, they call it declare, I've learned. Like the guys make a declaration, essentially. And I like that. Dating in Mexico has also been very fun. I think the more you date in big cities, the more likely you are to diversify your pool of candidates because people are coming from all over the world to be there. Soft life, best life, y'all know it. I asked Taylor if she resonated with the concept of black girl soft life. And if she did, if she believed she was living a soft life. I definitely live a soft life and it's not even debatable. (laughs) It's the life that I've curated for myself And I find things like fresh air, rest, dancing, a really good coffee, really good belly laughter to be pretty crucial. And when we lose sight of those things, it's always unfortunate because we forget our magic. And I don't want to forget mine. So I certainly live a a soft life. My lifestyle, especially because another great thing about my traveling life is I've become a great house sitter. If everyone hasn't heard of Stephanie Perry yet, you should definitely look into her. When I was uh, transitioning out of South Africa and traveling again, I discovered house sitting and since then have stayed in some of the most luxurious places ever. I'm right now staying in a two-story penthouse apartment with a wraparound garden. In Paris, I stayed in a private gardened, two-bedroom, gorgeous apartment next to um, Sacré-Cœur. I have stayed at an entire estate in Mexico with acres and acres of land. And I think choosing a soft life is a very deliberate choice. If I could choose a soft life day in the life for me, it would be what this week was. Waking up without an alarm, taking a bubble bath at 7 a.m., coming upstairs, making myself an espresso, petting my cat Tula, who's here, going out on the terrace, doing a meditation around all the plants, going into town, buying a green dress because that's what I wanted, going to the library and doing the work that I need to do amongst all of these books and archives, eating really good quality food, taking a nap, taking a siesta, dancing in the evening and having dinner with friends. Life is sweet. Life is really sweet and simple, but all of those things are decisions. You can opt in or out of soft life, and it doesn't have to be something substantial or expensive. I asked Taylor, what is her personal definition of wellness? And how has that definition and that practice evolved as she has lived abroad? It reminds me of this quote by Maya Angelou, which talks about doing what you do, liking what you do, and doing it with some style and grace. 
I find that to me, if I can embody those things, that is success for me. And wellness is a huge part of that. You cannot do and strive and be if you're not well. So the question really becomes, how can we get to that quiet place and have that honest conversation about what you really need? Because if you're able to define those things for yourself, you're able to start building a wellness practice. For me, if I didn't have a wellness practice, I don't know what I would be doing because I wouldn't be showing up for the important things in life. If you're not well, if you're not kept, if you're not confident, there's no way that we can show up 100% for the things that are important. So wellness for me is getting to the quiet place and having the honest conversation about your needs. When you move abroad, you realize that everyone's prioritizing it but you. I think that it's a pretty basic concept looking after oneself, but we somehow find our way to prioritize other things before it. So for example, in moving to Southeast Asia, you realize people are having massages three times a week. And it's not something that just the wealthy do. We have massages because we understand that having good blood flow helps the joints and helps the muscles. I hadn't been having any massages unless it was a special occasion before. But going to a place where I could normalize getting that done, I realized it's something that I want (laughs) to put into my my bag of tricks that I want to infuse into my life. Eating well. The, this concept of not eating quality food in a place like France doesn't make any sense. Everybody's eating great food in France. And it's not, again, a wealth thing. It is buying fresh foods and vegetables and being able to know that you have the human right to good, clean water whenever you want. If you're walking around Paris, you can go to their fountain, like beautiful statues with fountains everywhere where you can just get fresh water and in some places, sparkling water for free. And it's considered just your right. When did we stop thinking that we didn't deserve these things inherently? So for me, it was eye-opening to move abroad to realize, oh, I've been doing things like wellness wrong. There are ways that I can get better at wellness for myself. There are ways that I can incorporate these practices to my life in real ways. In living in Valencia this summer, wellness means siesta. I hadn't been taking siestas like that, even though I've been living in Mexico. We don't really have siesta like that uh, where I live in San Miguel. But in Spain, it very much is paramount. And since I've been doing it like a local and taking siesta, I realize how much more energetic I am in the evenings, how much more I can get done in the evenings. And that is something that I'm now adding to my mental notes. How might I rest during the day, even if it's for an hour? So the more you live abroad, the more you observe how people are doing softness, how they're doing wellness. And while you might not adopt the entire culture, there are simple things you can do. 
Thank you so much, Taylor, for one, just being who you are. So lovely. I'm so happy to say that I know you and I really cherish the time that we shared together here in Valencia. And also, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story here on Flourish No Foreign so that my entire audience can experience just a little bit of your splendor. If you all want to keep up with Taylor, you can via social media. I'm really excited about Art Unknown. Um, I'm a pioneer of amplifying those who have voices of their own. And this is the work that I'm trying to always bring forward with Art Unknown. So if you want to join the conversation or get in touch with me, I'm at www.artunknown.org. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. If you'd like to learn more about this guest, please check out their show notes page at flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes. Be sure to grab the Move Abroad with Intention guide to not only aid in your leap abroad and making sure that it is successful, but also if you're already abroad, to keep you engaged and to keep you accountable as you cultivate this new life abroad. I've also curated a playlist of sorts that goes with the guide. I made a whole list of episodes of this podcast that I think will be really helpful as you complete the guide. You could find that list in the description of this episode. And I'd also suggest that you grab the Build a Business Abroad guide if building your own business abroad or taking it abroad is something that interests you. It's not for everybody, but for those of you that are interested in it, I highly suggest you grab that guide. And I've created a playlist for the Build a Business Abroad guide as well, which is basically just season three of this podcast. Season three of this podcast was a mini season all about building a business abroad. Be sure to check out the Flourish in the Foreign blog and the Flourish in the Foreign bookshop powered by bookshop.org, where you can support local bookstores and Flourish in the Foreign at the same time. Check out my list of books to help you move, live, and thrive abroad. Make sure that you are subscribed to the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel and follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at Flourish Foreign. You can also follow the podcast on LinkedIn at Flourish in the Foreign. And of course, subscribe to the podcast via whichever platform you listen on and leave a review. As always, big thanks to Zachary Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. As a Black woman living in the United States was always about survival mode. And here for me, it's about healing mode. It's about wellness. And really what that means for me is being safe, supported, sustained, and happy and calm. 
I alluded to it earlier, but not being under the gaze, that's medicine in itself. 